A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So tauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Uh, grab a bottle of vodka. We're going to have a little Fabrengen, the 25th. Uh, anniversary of the Histalkus of the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, and uh, it doesn't happen without Abyssal Chaim. so that's definitely the way to begin. This is Yehudi Geberer with another Jewish History Soundbites podcast, a special Moitzi Shabbos one in honor of Gimel Tammuz, and a special Gimel Tammuz as it's the 25th um, yard site since the Histalkus of the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rast Rebbe of Chabad, and once we mentioned, once I mentioned the Mashke, the Lechaim, the Vodka, which is so prominent by all Fabrengans, so why, why is it so prominent? Why is that such a major component? And the Rebbe himself once explained that he said several reasons, but um, say one of them, which is uh, one of my more favorite ones. Uh, personally, that when you come, that you see a sign up in shul, there's going to be a fabrengen for some yard site or for some uh, event, and we're going to teach chesidus, we're going to sing a little bit. So the nefesh kis wants to go to the fabrengen, the higher, more spiritual nefesh that a person is possessed of wants to go to fabrengen because he wants to grow in avodas Hashem. And the nefesh Bahamas says, hey, I don't want to go. I'm not interested in learning Chassidus. I'm not interested in Avedis Hashem. So you tell the Nefesh Abahamis, you know, they're serving some good mashka there, some good vodka. There'll be some nice l'chaims by the Fabrengen. And then the Nefesh Abahamis wants to go. So it's a way to convince the Nefesh Abahamis to come along to the Fabrengen to learn Chassidus. And therefore, the mashka is a major component of the Chassidic gathering. And the Last Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Mendel Schneerson, was arguably the most influential or one of the most influential rabbinical leaders in the post-war era in the world. And for someone who was born in Nikolaev, in the deep in the pale of settlement in the Ukraine, and Einikul the Tzedek, grows up in a Russian city, Ukrainian city, which I'll definitely pronounce wrong because I find it impossible to pronounce these Ukrainian cities correctly, but something along the lines of Yekaterinoslav. 
and he becomes this incredibly influential leader uh, later on. So how does that how does that all happen? Now, the, the first thing is to clarify whether it's the last Rebbe of Chabad or the last Lubavitcher Rebbe. And the terms seem to be used interchangeably. And the reason is, is because after the Lubavitcher Rebbe's ancestor, the Tzemach Tzedek, the original Rebbe Mendel, after he passed away in 1866, um, and it was actually a, a very harrowing month in the Hasidic world, because in one month in 1866, the three great Rebbes of Hasidus, one in Russia and two in Poland, the Teferis Shloima of Radomsk, the Chidushe Harim of Ger, and the Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad, all passed away within a month, and it was a devastating blow for Hasidus. And in Chabad, it was a big blow because the Tzemach Tzedek was a tremendous leader. He was a very dynamic and powerful leader. He brought Lubavitch to its, uh, to its peak. Lubavitch was the town where the Tzemach Tzedek's father-in-law, the Mittler Rebbe, the second Rebbe of Chabad, had moved to. And uh, it's interesting that it's called Lubavitch, and out of the seven uh, Rebbes who are known as the Lubavitch Rebbes, only um, four of them lived in Lubavitch itself. Um, the first Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, did not live in Lubavitch. He lived in, in Lozhna and then in Liadi, and he died in Hadich, running away from Napoleon, and which, you know, I bring groups to. Um, a pilgrimage all the way out to Hadich to go to the Alter Rebbe in the Ukraine. Um, and then the last two, um, the Friedrich Rebbe and the last Rebbe of Chabad, also were not in Lubavitch. So the Tzemach Tzedek brings Lubavitch to its peak as a center of Hasidus in Russia. And when he dies, he has six sons, and several of them start their own little chutzers of Chabad. It splits into several and there's Chabad of, of uh, Liadi, there's Chabad of uh, Kapust, there's Chabad of, um, eventually later on, of Babroisk, there's a Chabad of Ovrich, which is more like a Chernobyl Chatzar, there's, uh, there's of, of Nizhin, of where actually the Mittler Rebbe was buried, um, also in the Ukraine, also bring groups too, and there's different branches of Chabad, and actually, interestingly enough, Kapust is is a major branch for many years and uh, somewhat even more dominant than, than Lubavitch. Lubavitch um, goes down in its prominence under the Rebbe Maharash, who's the youngest child of the Tzemach Tzedek. I think I said six, that might have been a mistake. I think they actually had seven sons, um, to double check that. And, um, and uh, even after the Maharash passes on, the Rash, Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, um, only brings back the prominence to Lubavitch when he really takes the reins of leadership in the 1890s, 1894 approximately, and he really doesn't bring Lubavitch back to its real prominence until he opens the yeshiva's Taimchei Tmimim in 1897, which is a truly historical event. Um, the Taimchei Tmimim yeshiva changed Hasidus, it changed Chabad, it changed Russian Jewry, it was a major movement, the Taimchei Tmimim yeshiva, and it really brought the center back to uh, Lubavitch under the Rebbe Rashab, who was a very, very uh, powerful and strong leader of Chabad, also close with many of the um, Litvisher Rabbanim of his day. He was very close to Chaim Eisr Gajinsky and, and others. Interestingly enough, the Tzemach Tzedek, who I mentioned before, he was the first one to um, officially meet with the 
what was then called the Misnagdik camp. He met Rabitzela of Alajan in St. Petersburg when the two of them were both trying to intercede at the Tsar's government on behalf of Russian Jewry to not to implement educational reform. And they saw that they were both coming for the same purpose and they realized that uh, it might not be so um, um, kedai at this point to invest in in uh, in uh, in working separately, but rather to start working together, and that was the beginning uh, of a of a different type of a relationship between the Hasidic camp and the non-Hasidic, so-called Misnagdic camp. In any event, so going back to so going back to the splits in Chabad, so there's all types of Chabads, and Lubavitch only comes back to prominence at the turn of the century. So there is there is the idea of the Chabad Hasidus. And then there's the idea of Lubavitch, and it finally comes back to be synonymous, one and the same, in the early years of the 20th century, but really not completely till after World War I and the Russian Revolution and the assuming of the role of the Friedrich Rebbe the Rayats, the last Rebbe of Chabad's father-in-law. And uh, then, so then it becomes synonymous again. So today Chabad is Lubavitch, Lubavitch is Chabad, and the other branches don't really... um, um, have any prominence in today's day and age. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, is born into that world. He eventually marries the second daughter of the Friedeke Rebbe, of the previous Rebbe, the, uh, the Rayats, Rabbi Yisif Yitzchak Schneerson. And he, they get married in Warsaw. The, um, the, the, in, in, and they eventually live there for about a year later on in the 1930s. Uh, so they get married in, in Warsaw, the capital of Poland. This is after the Rebbe himself and his father-in-law and his family had left the Soviet Union, which is a whole story in itself. That's for another time. And he had, besides for going to yeshivas and having private malamdam, he also uh, attended different universities. He had been in the Leningrad University under the communist Russians. He later studied in Berlin, uh, later on, much later on in Paris, and uh, he he had a uh, quite an extensive university education. He was very very smart, very wide range of knowledge of 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 Benister and Hasidus, and also in in secular knowledge. Eventually, getting uh, the official um, degree of being an engineer, specifically an electrical engineer in France. That's something. I'll get to in a second. Um, he he lives. Uh, he did live for one short period of time near his father-in-law in in Warsaw. His, his father-in-law had some wanderings after he escaped from the Soviet Union. First in Riga, then in, uh, he visited America, Israel, and um, and he comes back to Europe and he comes to Warsaw. Then later Otvotsk, but mostly the his son-in-law, the his second son-in-law, the who later became the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he. He um, settles down in Berlin with his wife, and he only he's a, escapes from Berlin when the Nazis come to power, and he moves to Paris, uh, being there until again the Nazis come to power, in which he has to, in which case he has to be on the run again. All this time he keeps a very low profile, in essence, and this is the amazing paradox of someone who is so influential and such a public persona and leader and and. And his influence reached the highest political circles and 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 in all different countries worldwide. And he himself and his personal life was a very private person, a very 
low profile. He was an idle personality in, in, in his private life. And in, in his younger years, one saw it as he kept a very quiet profile. He wasn't next to his father-in-law. His older brother-in-law, Shmaryahu Gurarya, was the one in the Chatzar of Chabad in Warsaw and in Atfaz, and even before that in, in, in Russia. And he was the major player, the, the, the one that the, was the recognized figure as, his, as the, as the uh, Rayatz's right-hand man. And he was further away, keeping in touch by correspondence and visits and doing his own thing. Um, interestingly enough, this, this is a feature that never left him. Um, when later on, and it is well known, he never had any children, unfortunately. And he, when his wife, Rabbi Sinchaya Mushka, passed away, um, he would keep even more, be more reserved into himself, so much so that the Seder night, which in Chabad and all the Shluchim are making these huge storm around the world, the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself had the Seder himself. He sat in his room, did the Seder himself, and uh, that's how private he was. And his Gabayim, his Meshamshim, would beg him to join, or at least allow them to join with their families. And he'd say, no, it's fine, I'm happy, and it's okay, I'm doing it myself. And it's interesting that he kept this, this again, in a paradoxical, in, in, as a, in a paradox, he kept this private side to him uh, as well throughout his life besides for being a very public persona. So he escapes again from the Nazis when the Nazis come to France in June 1940, and he goes to southern France. He's registered at the time as an engineer in Paris and later in southern France. And, and uh, that's what he, he wants to keep, this uh, low profile, this quietness to him being Tsunua. But uh, something happens at that point, and possibly it was the upheaval of the war and the beginning of the... Nazi occupation and seeing what the Jewish people were going through and the the exile that he himself is going through and he goes through some sort of cheshbon nefesh and it's definitely not clear 100% what what caused him to make this decision but he decides to make a turnaround in his life and to, to, to decides to take a leadership role in Kali Yisrael a rabbinical role in Kali Yisrael and he realizes that the times and the changing times and the tragic times are calling on him to take a more outspoken role and decisive role for the future of Kveit Shemayim and for the Jewish people. And that's an interesting uh, change that takes place during those months when he's trying to escape Europe. And it's not so simple to escape Europe at that point. It's under Nazi occupation. He's in Vichy, France, which is collaborating with the Nazi government. And, uh, and um, how is he going to get out? His younger brother-in-law, Menachem Mendel um, Harenstein, excuse me, Menachem Edel Hornstein and his wife don't get out. And in fact, uh, he and his wife, the youngest daughter and son-in-law of the previous rabbi, were killed by the Nazis. So it wasn't, obviously wasn't so simple to get out. And um, what complicated things was that he couldn't get a rabbinical visa because he was registered as an engineer. So they couldn't establish that he's a rabbi and needed in America. So they tried to bring him in as part of the rabbi's family. And the previous rabbi and Rishmael Gorari and their uh, their their families had already gotten out. They had gone gotten to New York already the previous year, and now they're trying to get him out. So they somehow convinced the American government to issue him a visa. So that hurdle is overcome, despite the fact that he's not considered and registered as a rabbi. They're still able to convince him to, that he's needed as part of the Rebbe's family. And the second hurdle is to get him ship tickets. Interestingly enough, my wife's um, uh, family, her one of her ancestors was a was a fellow who had 
ship tickets in order to get his in-laws out. And his in-laws were stuck in Antwerp, which was already under Nazi occupation. He was trying to get them to go leave Antwerp, get to southern France, and get on these ship tickets that he had prepared for them. They were unable to leave Antwerp, and unfortunately they were killed by the Nazis in Auschwitz, And now, he, and which happened obviously later on, but he realized that they were unable to leave. And now he has these ship tickets, which might be one of the last ships to leave, uh, uh, civilian ships to leave across the Atlantic from occupied France. And him being a close, um, with the Rebbe's family, with Chabad, he was affiliated with Chabad to a certain extent. This uh, great-grandfather of my wife gave the tickets to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I always like saying how the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his wife owe their lives, and the world owes the fact that they, they had the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, afterwards the war that he wasn't stuck behind by the Nazis because of my wife's great-grandfather. So that's uh, ultimately to his credit. Uh, even after he arrives in America, and he arrives at, at, at one, really at one of the last out, he arrives in the summer of 1941, talking about deep into the Nazi occupation, about a year after the Nazis uh, came to France, talking about deep, uh, pretty deep into the war. Um, he arrives in America, and even there he keeps quite a low profile by his father-in-law. Mario Gurari is still the dominant uh, son-in-law. His father-in-law gives him more and more jobs. He becomes in charge of the Merkaz Linyon Echinuch, and then the Kahas Publishing, and um, the Rebbe starts making Wolfa uh, Brengens for the younger Hasidim to attract them and bring them closer to Hasidus. And then on Yud Shvat, Tovshin Yud, 1950, the previous Rebbe, the Rayats, passes away. And now the question is, who's going to become the new Rebbe? And there's um, a little bit of a question amongst the Hasidim, amongst the family, who becomes. And ultimately, it took a full year. And without getting too bogged down by the details, um, the, eventually the Hasidim crown the Rebbe, the Rebbe Menachem Mendel, the second son-in-law, the Rebbe. Eventually, Rebbe Shmai himself accepts the Rebbe, the uh, they become, they, he attends the Fabrengans of the Rebbe, he gives his famous first mimer on that yard site of his father-in-law of Basi Legani, which became legendary in Chabad circles, and um, he consolidates his position as the Rebbe, which wasn't so simple at first, there were people who voiced their protests, how is he taking over his father-in-law's position, his own mother-in-law wasn't so excited about it, um, other people in the Hasidus, his his father-in-law's Gabai wasn't too happy about it, Chaim Lieberman, and there were voices of protest, but it took some time, and he was able to consolidate his control and his leadership in the movement. Once he becomes the Rebbe, he, he has a very interesting practice, which almost no Rebbe in the history of Hasidus practice, and he never left New York. He almost left, never left New York City, went a couple of times to the Catskills to the Chabad camp, but that's about it. He pretty much never leaves uh, um, New York City, um, and, but everyone comes to him. Everyone eventually comes to him. And uh, from all types, uh, all backgrounds, religious, secular, Jewish, non-Jewish, politicians, rabbis, simple people, uh, celebrities, every possible person finds their way to him. And uh, really an interesting diversity. And he sends people out. He starts, he continues what his father-in-law started, but he brings it to a whole new level. The shluchim, the Chabad shliach, who's become such a dominant feature of those who travel abroad. And I myself, when I bring the groups to all these parts of Eastern Europe, we always encounter the Chabad Shlichim, and they 
you know, help us out, obviously, with food and other stuff that we need. And always like to hear a little bit about what's going on in the local Jewish community from them. So we definitely encounter them at their work. And it starts from him. And interestingly enough, he's, he, he starts it and he continues it from his father-in-law and he expands it. And obviously, there's many different influences. Primarily, he takes the dictum of the Baal Shem Tev, that Yafutsu Ma'inasecha Chutza, that the ideas of Yiddishkeit, of Torah and Mitzvahs, and of course later on also Hasidus, have to be spread out to the four corners of the world in order for Mashiach to come. He takes it quite literally, like unlike anyone in the history of Hasidus had ever taken it, he takes it very, very literally. But beyond that, one of the outside influences that he had, and he actually spoke about this at a Fabrengan once, was the Peace Corps. When JFK announces in the early 60s that he's starting the Peace Corps, that he's going to send out young American students out to Samoa and anywhere in the Pacific and all these funny places and islands and all across the world to teach the natives English and to bring them all types of great things from American culture. He spoke about it at Fabrengan. He was very inspired by it. And he said, these young people are going to, you know, go out in the middle of nowhere where there's no infrastructure and there's no community and they don't have any other backing. And they're going to go spread values that they believe is the correct values to spread. And look at that. Look at these young people, what they're capable of doing. And he got a lot of inspiration from the Peace Corps, which is fascinating that he's able to take the influence from the outside and he able to give his influence on wide circles, even beyond the Jewish people, even on the non-Jewish people. And I just want to end off with a very interesting, it's, a, it's, a, it's the day of his, of his histalkus, it's a yard site, but Interesting, one of the things that he incorporated into, into Jewish life was the celebration of birthdays, which had never been a part of Jewish life. The Torah records that Paroi had birthdays. It wasn't really a Jewish thing so much to celebrate birthdays. And he said we should celebrate birthdays. And it was one of the things that he added and encouraged people to do. And I think there's, even though it seems to be a minor point in his illustrious career as a leader and the influence that he had, um, but this really brings out a certain point. He said, you know why you need to celebrate a birthday? Because on this day, the day that you were born, is the day that Hashem decided that the world cannot exist without you. And that's a day to celebrate. It's a day to realize your responsibilities in the world. That this is a day that Hashem said, the world cannot go on without you. The world needs you and your contribution. And that's an amazing lesson. And that's a lesson that he really tried to impart to everyone that everyone's needed and everyone can be reached and we need to reach everyone. So that's um, a little bit about the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his leadership. This was Yehudi Geber on Jewish History Soundbites. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode. You can also reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course to take tours to all these amazing places and hear about these people. Share with your friends and family. You can follow uh, Jewish History Soundbites on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.